you have your Bible, I want to invite you to grab one, or if you got it on your phone, or if you don't have one, there's some in the lobby that is our gift for you. It'll also be on the screen. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah. We're looking at the gospel story, and last week we kind of saw how this all began, like our need for this. Why on earth is there a need for the gospel of Jesus? And we saw that uh, was because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and now we're going to fast forward and look at what the prophet Isaiah has to say about the gospel message. In fact, what you're going to see in this passage is an incredible detailed uh, prophecy of what is going to happen. And we'll dive into that in just a moment. So Isaiah chapter 53, we're gonna go through the whole chapter. Uh, Don't be alarmed, it's just 12 verses. Um, Perhaps maybe the only 12 verses you've read all week, and that's okay, no judgment here. Isaiah chapter 53, if you are there, just say amen. Okay, some of you are just like, oh me. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, talking about Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you so much that for your word, in your word brings life. It brings liberty and freedom. It is the light in the darkness. It is cause 
division in our dark spots of our hearts, God. So we pray, God, as, as I do my best at dividing your word rightly, Lord, that you would be glorified, that people would be in awe of who you are this morning. We pray that you would be mighty to save in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to religions, Christianity is the only religion that has two sets of accounts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, and, and they are in exact harmony with each other. The Old Testament is a lot of the judgment of God, the impending wrath of God, the, the, the accounts of the prophets telling the people of God to repent. It is a narrative story of one to come that is going to redeem them from the impending wrath of God that is upon the people on earth. And then you flip the switch and you have this New Testament, um, many books that account of the New Testament that talks about how all of these things have been revealed. All of these things that the Old Testament has been pointing to, they have been revealed. It is a message of salvation. So you could look at the Old Testament as a book of wrath, as a book of judgment coming, as a book of something that is going to fix all things that were broken back in Genesis chapter 3, which was last week. And then you could look at the New Testament as a book of what has been made right. All of those things that have been talked about for thousands of years have finally been made right. And this is a prophecy tucked in the Old Testament that our boy Isaiah talked about and the interesting thing about this specific prophetic text that we just read is that it's written 700 years before Christ even arrives on the scene. 700 years. 700 years before this Messiah comes to reconcile all things. And I want you to notice all of the details that Isaiah gives in this chapter that we'll go through in just a moment. But 700 years before Christ's arrival, Isaiah is giving an incredible depiction, a very detailed account of what is going to happen to one, the people of God, and then the one who is coming to redeem the people of God. The book of Isaiah is ironically, or not maybe ironically, but providentially divided into 66 books. Just a little trivia for you this morning, if we can. How many books are in the Bible? There you go. You don't get a prize or anything. You just, just hand clap for you. 66. Now, how many are in the Old Testament? 39. Now, divide 66, 39. How many are in the New Testament? 17. Isaiah is just like that. There are 66 books in the book of Isaiah. The first 29 chapters of Isaiah are just like the first 29 books in the Old Testament, which talks about this judgment that is coming to the people of God if they don't turn away from their sins. You see, in this time, the people of God, they had started colluding with the Assyrians and all of these other people because they wanted to be like them. And Isaiah's warning them in these first 29 books or chapters of Isaiah to turn away from your ways. And then you get the same divide as we do in the New Testament where it's a book of salvation. It's a testament of salvation, just like we get in these last 
chapters of Isaiah. It's pointing the people back to the saving grace. And right here we get in the middle of it all, this incredible depiction of what this grace and salvation, what this message is. Talks about this servant that is coming that despite, God's not gonna use Israel because of how great they are, how awesome they are. He's gonna use them despite them. And he would use someone in Israel, a Jew, a servant, to come and ransom the people of God. And despite this message of judgment that is right before, that, that is tucked in the first 29 chapters of Isaiah, that is, that is tucked in the whole Old Testament, despite this message of judgment, there is this prophecy that's given to us as a message of hope. A message, remember back in Genesis chapter 3, where we started all of this, where this kind of resounding theme of, you know, despite the fall happening, despite sin entering into the hearts of men and women, despite what looks like terrible news, there's actually something good that's happening here. And it's a message of that there will be one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so Isaiah is dialing into that same message and expanding upon it and telling us what exactly that's going to look like. And again, this is so cool. Like if you're a nerd like me, this is written 700 years before this even happens. And there's only one answer to how this could take place. There's only one answer that can give us, like, how on earth did everything that the Old Testament talk about come to fulfillment without it being the divine authoritative word of God? How can you say something 700 years ago that's going to happen exactly like the prophet says? The word of God. Now, from an apologetic standpoint, like, this is like proof, man. You want proof in the pudding? Like, this is it. Like, they have unearthed the scrolls of Isaiah and written and read it verbatim. And this is what it says. And these are 700 years before Christ's arrival. How could that be if there wasn't some divine entity being out there telling us exactly what's going to happen? Like, that just, just blows my mind, man. I mean, I can tell you something, and you could tell somebody else, and by the third person, you're telling a different story. But all of these people are telling the same exact story that's in perfect harmony with one another. So let me get into what Isaiah is talking about, and let's just kind of divide the, the text this morning, and then just keep kind of pull back and just see the overarching theme of this. So look back at verse one. That's a great place to start. Who believed the message given to us, right? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know who believed the message? Nobody. It's a rhetorical question. Nobody's going to believe it. He'll dive into why in just a moment, why they're not going to believe this, this message and this prophetic utterance from the Lord. Nobody's going to believe this message. It's so funny how, how Isaiah writes this, why we're not believing this and why that's so true even today, why some of us don't believe. And he gives an answer in verse six where he says that we all like sheep have just kind of gone our own way. We go the way of self 
So who believes? Nobody's going to believe the report. Nobody's going to believe this divine message. And, and, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this is a Hebrew expression of the power of God. This hand of God being revealed. This is the divine God-man who has come. And nobody's going to believe. And he's going to give the answer to why none of us are going to believe this. And this is going to be staggering because it's going to shake your view, physical view, of who Jesus really is. Because our view of Jesus, right, is he's a white guy. He's got this incredible beard. Like he's been trimming. He's got the right beard oil. He's got an elongated chin. got like six pounds. Like he's cut and ripped. Like Jesus is on like P90X extreme and he is like doing the yoga and we probably doesn't do that. He's probably doing like all of these crazy things. And you know, you look at this Jesus, you're like, Jesus, you are beautiful. But Isaiah is going to tell you something different and he's going to give us the reason why most of us here do not believe and why he was rejected and why no one believed this report. Listen to what he says. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, all right? That's not a compliment, all right? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men. And at the end of his life, he became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their, hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not because our view of Jesus is different from the view of Jesus that the Bible gives us. That's why many people don't believe and will not believe. That's why they wouldn't believe this prophetic message from Isaiah because he didn't look the part. We didn't see him as anything important. He's a root out of the dry ground. We didn't see him. We didn't recognize him. We didn't notice him. He came from a no-body town, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth was the question that the disciples or the people gave. He didn't look at, like, he, he didn't come from an elite group of people. His background was unimpressive. He was a dead, dry root, nothing to us, nothing to physically even look at. In fact, his physical appearance caused us to look away from him. And then he's born in a manger, like born in a barn. Like he's born there and shepherds who are these scum type people are visiting him. This is not the king that we had anticipated. This is not the king that we wanted to come and rid us of this oppression that we're all under. So we, we didn't recognize him because he didn't fit the mold that we thought he should fit. And, and likewise, like, interesting, 2,700 years later, still people reject Jesus because he does not fit their cultural demands. You know, it, oh, Jesus isn't intolerant. Well, I'll have nothing of him. Jesus isn't this. He doesn't do this. And we'll just reject him because he doesn't fit that mold that we want him to be. We want Jesus to be on our terms. Why did the people not believe? Because Jesus was not on their terms. They despised him. They despised his origin. They despised his presence. And they despised him even at the end when he became a man of sorrows. Nobody gave him the honor. Nobody gave him the respect. 
nothing important, hung around a bunch of ragtag jokers, a bunch of hillbillies from Bama. That's who we hung around from. Like nobody cared. He was the kind of person you just, you see and you quickly turn away from. That's, that's who Jesus is described as. And look at verse four. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried out our sorrows. He esteemed him, yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Here's what this means. Like we think he's like totally has blasphemed the name of God. That's why he's being esteemed and stricken. That's why he's on the criminal cross. Oh, you weren't the one who said who you said you were. You are a blasphemer. And so now you've been esteemed by God because of your sin. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we were healed. Now let me take just a few minutes just to kind of take this apart for us if I can. Just a few words in here that are important for us to understand rightly. Like when he says like he's, he's, pier- he's pierced for our transgressions or, and or iniquities, just a little dive into this word transgressions. Transgressions is sin in the sense that you have violated the way of God. In a sense that you have violated the law and the way of God. Iniquities means that you have perverted the way of God. It's a perversion. It's what happened in the garden in Genesis 3 where God has said all these things are good, but Satan comes in and he perverts everything. He perverts sex. He perverts power. He perverts everything that you and I come under attack with, with temptations, has been perverted. And so he is talking about this iniquity He was crushed for the things that we have perverted, the things that we have twisted and taken. And then he's carried away our griefs, carried away our sorrows, meaning the chastisement. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our perversions. And because of this, we are healed. Let me ask you a question. What's the greatest cosmic problem in our world? Sin. What do you and I need to be healed from? Sin. The, the same Hebrew word that is used here for healed comes from the Hebrew word nippah, and it also used as Psalm 41.4 when he says, Oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Our sins needing to be healed from these sins is what Christ ultimately came to do. The greatest cosmic issue that arrives in Genesis chapter three is now being prophetically uh, foretold that you will be healed from that greatest cosmic problem. Here's the solution. Jesus comes and he heals you from this issue and it's sin. It is what is separating us from the Father. And here comes Jesus as our intercessor, or as our mediator, and comes in to heal us from that. You can't do that on your own. Jesus comes in and gives us this solution to this problem. And then in verse number six, all we like sheep have gone astray. And like, this all just seems like terrible news initially, and it is, but it gets better. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, his, of us all. All of us are like sheep. You know what sheep do? They sheep, right? Sheep do what sheep do. You do what you do. And here's this message given to us. Because of you doing what you do, you need Jesus. You need Jesus, right? Like sheep by nature are sheep. You in your nature have sin and you need a solution to it. Like a lamb. And, and so if we're all sheep, here comes the greater sheep, all right? Here comes the greater lamb that's going to give us this resolution to all of this depravity that we're all under, that we need a savior to lift us from. And so like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Like that is fascinating to me. All right, so shepherds would, would lure their sheep in and they would just lovingly follow them because they thought they'd get in a haircut, right? Because that's what the shepherds would do. You don't cut a sheep's hair, it gets all nasty, it gets all big and fluffy, like they got this giant afro going on and they need somebody to come in and cut it. Why? Because they can't do it themselves. And so the shepherd is leading them, but this time the shepherd's leading them through the slaughterhouse, but they're not saying anything because they know their shepherd is good and they think their shepherd is just going to give them a haircut. And we have this lamb of God that's being led to the slaughterhouse and he is silent. He is silent to, um, he is silent to Herod, Caiaphas, to Pilate. He's not trying to vindicate himself. I'm innocent. I mean, come on, like if an innocent person is innocent, don't we want to let everybody know? If I'm innocent, then I'm going to scream to the top of my lungs that I'm innocent. I am innocent. If I'm before a judge, I go to him like, bro, you've got it all wrong, man. These jokers are just accusing me. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm innocent because that's what innocent people are supposed to do. Job, before all of these plagues that come upon him, he's like, I'm innocent. What's going on? What am I doing wrong here? Innocent people throughout the Bible, they declare their innocence, but there's one who is not declaring his innocence, who is quiet before the wrath. And that's Jesus. I'm telling you right now, like, this is so like, like blowing my mind because how could someone know all of these details how could someone know that there's going to be like this God man that comes up before a judge and before these kings and not say anything? Like, how is he going to know like his appearance is a little jacked up and, and like people are just going to like toss him aside because he comes from this podunkville? And how, how is he going to know other, other than just the divine authority of God? And he goes on to say why he's innocently killed. And this, this one, like, really, like, this one really rattles me a little bit. Verse 10, all right? And it pleased the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
at this point, I'm like, gee, thanks, Dad. I mean, you could have used a better word, like, you know, it was the will of the Lord to sacrifice. It was the will of the Lord to, like, bring upon the redemption of mankind. But it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who killed Jesus? The Romans? Well, they were just agents. Who killed Jesus? Well, it was the Jews. It was my sin. Yeah, that's an agent. But it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to strike him. He is the lamb. In the, in the family unit, you would have where the father would pick the lamb to be the sacrifice for the family. And here, God the father has chosen his sacrifice for the family, for the world, and it's Jesus. Like he's chosen him. It's his will to lead the lamb to the slaughterhouse. And you just think like when John the Baptist words in John chapter one, verse 29, when he says, behold, the lamb of God, like now that has a deeper weight to it. Like we get like this little cute picture of a little baby lamb. Like, no, this is a lamb that's being led to the slaughterhouse. Where in Revelation chapter six or seven, I believe, it talks about how the lamb who had been slaughtered has overcome. And it was the will of the father for this to happen. In verse nine, in, we get a couple of different things that I had underlined on the screen for you to look at. In verse nine, we get, we get past his death. His grave was assigned with wicked men. And what does that mean? Like Jesus there is assigned with wicked men on the left and the right. He's with the two thieves, right? Criminals were thrown in the Valley of Hinnon and, and which is down the slope of the backside of Jerusalem. And this word is where Gehana comes from. And it's like this, this trash yard where, where a flame never dies, where Jesus uses this illustration to describe the metaphor for hell. And the criminals, when they would finally die after possibly, and this is gross, but after possibly birds would rip their skin apart and, and possibly an animal would climb up the wood and devour them, after they've finally been mutilated for the world to see, their bodies then were thrown into the eternal flame in Guyana. But then you have this interesting verse um, you have this interesting verse, his grave was assigned with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death. As if the Roman Empire is saying, you want to cross us? Here's what we'll do to you. But was Jesus thrown into that never-ending trash pit where fire never ceased? Who is he referencing here when he says that he's, his, his final account, right, when he's dead is with this rich man. He's, well, Joseph, right? Joseph of Arimathea, when Joseph is like, I, no, 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 we'll, we're going to lay him in a tomb. We'll give him the proper burial. Yet another fulfillment, if you have a cross-reference in your, in your Bible, it's a fulfillment of Psalm 1610, which says he would never allow his Holy One to see corruption. While the criminals would end their life in corruption, the Lamb of God would not. His final end, again, is with grief, a man of sorrow. 
again, I ask, how could all of this be true? How could Isaiah know this very detailed account of how Christ is going to die and suffer the criminal's death, and yet he will not be thrown in the pit with the others, but he will be laid to rest in a tomb. How did Isaiah know this? If it had not been the word of God. Let me tell you something real quick. If you are floundering like in your faith and you're just like, I just don't understand all this crazy junk. Like, let me tell you, like that should give you some encouragement right there that no other books from religion have these types of historical evidence for a God-man who would come to redeem you from yourself and your sin. Only the word of God can give this to us. Only the authoritative word can give this man who at once in Isaiah chapter six says, I'm just a man of unclean lips. Like, like who am I that you would send me? Like, like the guy that, that probably doesn't get picked a lot who's all alone minding his business in the temple, and suddenly the word of God and the presence of God fills this temple with Isaiah and asks like this really crazy question, whom am I going to send? And I'm guessing Isaiah is like, if he's down there by himself, probably looking around, and I was like, well, I guess it's me. It's like, buddy, how can it be me? I have, I'm a man of unclean lips. How can this be if it's not the word of God? using an ordinary person to proclaim this message of salvation to the people. That wouldn't even happen until 700 years after. Just a couple of thoughts on this from the perspective of who Jesus is. You have two ideas that are being presented here and who Jesus is. The first one, and you probably heard this before, that's Jesus is our suffering servant. Jesus is our surf, suffering, <laughs> I almost went ghetto on y'all, surfer and server. Jesus is our suffering servant. That's kind of hard to say. His outward appearance would not be admirable. It's quite the contrary. And it's interesting how God would do this. It's staggering to the mind how God would use an unattractive person to do great things. But that seems to be the method of his operation. King Saul was beautiful in his, his appearance. And they would find the son of Jesse to lead Israel. They went to the attractive sons. Because that's what we want. We want the, what's attractive. We want what is good in appearance to us. And here yet again, God uses the unattractive, the one from Nowhereville, and who suffers his life. Poor, the son of a carpenter, a carpenter himself. How did Jesus initially start his ministry? with suffering in a wilderness, being tempted and led by the devil, trying to give him this and that. The Bible would, would, would teach this theologically sound like encouragement for us who are going through suffering that Jesus is our suffering servant. 
he suffered the criminal's cross. That should encourage like some of us who have gone through suffering and who have gone through trauma and pain in our life. Like, like there's not an ounce of trauma that Jesus doesn't know about because of the suffering that he went through his life. Another incredible thing that we see here is Jesus took our place. In theology, we call this the substitutionary atonement, where there had to be someone to take the place of our sins, where there would have to be an animal sacrifice. And and here we have where the Lamb of God became that ultimate animal sacrifice. He is our substitute. He took on all of the wrath of God and the righteousness of God was satisfied with this atonement. All right, there's another theologically like rich term called propitiation. And that's what that means, that the righteousness of God was satisfied in the death of Christ which should bring so much freedom. Like, like the, the righteousness of God wasn't satisfied when you finally get your life together. The righteousness of God is not satisfied when like you are at your best self. The righteousness of God is satisfied and was satisfied through the death of Christ. Like, thank you, Jesus, Right? Like, I don't have to perform my way for the righteousness of God to be satisfied. I don't have to do more works. I don't have to be more successful in my parenting or in, as a spouse or, or as, you know, in my job, in my community, because the righteousness of God was already satisfied. And here, these 2,700 years ago, there's a man named Isaiah talking about how there will be this one man who will satisfy all of the demands of God and in his suffering and in his death will become satisfied. In his death, he will be satisfied. This atonement was made, brought to us by what Christ endured on the cross, the criminal's cross. And so this is just good news for us that he suffered in our place that this is the prophetic utterance of God to Isaiah that one day there will be a man who comes and will take that place and will satisfy all the demands. And the Lamb of God, as we know in the Gospels, comes Jesus and he does exactly everything that the prophet here foretells. How could this be other than the fact that there is a God and that there was a God like talking and speaking to the man, Isaiah? Just a couple of questions and I'll be done. You know, I've been going like 40 minutes. Um, I only go, I used to go like 30 minutes, but I guess the older I get, the more I have more things to say, you know? I'm becoming the old guy that won't shut up. So I pity you if you're still with me 10 years from now. My sermons will be like two hours long by then. Thank you. Praise God. Amen. Yeah, but I get right for those of you who said, you know, just a couple of questions and then I'll, I'll be at your way. So if you, when you think about the will of God, like God's will was to ultimately crush the sacrifice 
like think about that in terms of Christ, like following after this will, right? Like for us, like are we willing to follow Christ even if it does look like a life of suffering? Are, are we willing to follow Christ even in the hard times? It's so easy to follow Christ when things seem to be going okay. But my initial reaction to when issues come into my life is to wave my fist at God and say, how could you? You think Jesus was in the garden, like right before they came and arrested him and it's like waving his fist at the father. He's like, how could you do this to me? No, he's there saying, not my will, but your will be done. Following Christ, like we... We paint it as a picture that's, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, butterflies and it's just going to be so great and wonderful and you get your best life now. You'll have everything that you've ever dreamed of. Sometimes that's not following Christ. Sometimes that's just a result that your mom and dad were rich and they gave you everything that they had. But, but what I have found in my walk with Christ is that he, he's allowed me to go through suffering so that I could become more like him. So that I could become more like Jesus. And so are we still willing to follow after him even if it requires us to go through suffering? This whole idea of Christ being fully just, you know, doing the will of the Father, obeying the Father, like I think for us as a testament too, as followers of Christ, like are we willing to obey the commands of God? Are we willing to go after what he wants for us? To lay aside our will and, and lay aside our agendas and just go after what the Lord wants for us. I think there's a challenge in this to see who Jesus is, to see what he went through. And for us as believers to say, am I willing to follow after that Christ? This, this Christ that's not good in appearance. He, he's from Bethlehem, the ghetto. Am I willing to go after that Christ? The one that I'm willing to die for him. Am I willing to go and serve him? That's our challenge as believers. In an ever-increasing world where it seems to be, you know, so counterculture, this scripture and what the Bible is teaching. And, and so, you, you know, being afraid of being canceled and all these types of things. Are you still willing to follow after him? We've seen some crazy things over the past couple years of churches being shut down. They're not essential. Even, even pastors being arrested in our neighboring country of Canada. What say that that happens here? Would you still be willing to follow after Christ? Let's pray.